Please remain standing as we pray together. Almighty God, come now in the power of your Holy Spirit and fill this place again with the joy of resurrection victory, the truth that Christ has conquered death, hell, and the grave. Lord, for some of us who have been at church a lot in the last 12 hours, we would really appreciate a special anointing from you to give us the strength to heed and pay attention to the Word of God. And for me as the preacher of the Word, Lord, that you would overcome my sleep deprivation and that you would speak to your people through this jar of clay. Lord, we praise you for the wonderful good news we have to hear and that we have to receive this morning. And we ask your blessing on it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's try this one more time before you're seated. Alleluia. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. You may be seated. You may be seated. Yes, some of us uh, have been at church now for days and days and days. That's right. It's, uh, it was the Holy Week Marathon culminating last night uh, at Easter Vigil. And if you didn't make it, you missed the best Easter Vigil we have ever had. It was just absolutely wonderful. So next year, like, the, like they used to say, uh, Jewish people used to say, next year Jerusalem, next year Easter Vigil, okay? So we can do it. Um, if you've come this morning expecting to hear an apologetic, a uh, reasoned defense for the Christian belief that Jesus rose from the grave bodily, then you are going to go away disappointed. You'll have to come back at another time for that sermon. Instead, I'm going to proclaim Christ risen. I'm not going to explain Christ risen. We come this morning, we're doing here what is summed up by a mother named Peggy Key. She said that while driving to church on Easter Sunday, I told my children the Easter story. This is the day we celebrate Jesus coming back to life, I explained. And right away, my three-year-old son, Kevin, piped up from the back seat, will he be in church today? <laughs> well, today is about proclaiming Jesus Christ is risen indeed, and he is at church today. And we can thank God for that. Today is about the proclamation of an event and what that event means for the whole world and what it means for you and me sitting here in these pews today. And John's gospel does that, proclaims that event in a way that is sublimely masterful. I have now been preaching the resurrection for almost exactly 30 years. And so let me tell you, if you think you've heard some of this before, you try preaching this for 30 years and see if you don't repeat yourself. But, uh, but it, it never gets old for me to do this. I love telling the good news of Christ's resurrection. Because here's the message of the resurrection. Listen to this, what John is telling us here. When Jesus is raised bodily from the dead, a new creation begins that you and I are invited to be a part of right now. At that moment of resurrection, a new creation begins that you and I are invited to be a part of this very moment. And that new creation is so wonderful and so glorious that one day it is going to completely swallow up all the pain, all the death, the suffering, the failure this sad old world has ever known. Uh, in his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis wrote that in our present state, we cannot understand the power of the new heavens and the new earth to accomplish that. Listen to what he writes. He says, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. 
not knowing that the new creation, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, Jesus' resurrection is about a new creation beginning. This is what everything in John's gospel really has been leading up to to this point. I want to show you that right now. Take a look. If you, you can look it up in your pew Bible. It's John uh, chapter 1. Just look at the very beginning, at the very first verses there. This is what it says. In the beginning was the Word. Listen to that again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, did you hear in that short passage, did you hear all that creation language? John's gospel begins with exactly the same words of the very first book in the Bible, the book Genesis. We know that. By the way, Genesis is just from the Greek, which means beginning. It is the book about beginnings. And those are the same words that the book of Genesis begins with, in the beginning. So the gospel is intentionally linking itself to the story of God's creation. John's gospel, John is saying, look, what I'm telling you is about a new creation beginning. Now listen to how the resurrection account begins. Ready for this? This is John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early... While it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, every gospel account that we have in the New Testament, all four gospels, tell us that Mary Magdalene is the first person at the tomb of Jesus. The women were the last at the cross, and they were the first at the grave. But listen, John is the only gospel writer who tells us that she goes there when it is still dark. He's not just telling us something about the time of day, y'all. It's not just about the time of day. He has a deeper theological point to make. It begins in the dark because all of the disciples are in the dark still following the crucifixion. The darkness of devastated hopes. The darkness of death victorious. But there is another darkness that John is alluding to here. It is the darkness like the primordial darkness in Genesis before, before God created light. It is the darkness before creation. The earth, it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I want to suggest that some of us here this morning are perhaps in a time of darkness. Our family relationships may be broken and dark. Our lives are in the darkness of addiction. We're looking at the state of our nation and of the world, and I hear this constantly. We live with a sense of darkness and dread about the future. We live in the darkness, perhaps, some of us, of chronic pain and illness. And we see that darkness, perhaps. Listen, we see our darkness as complete and as defining for us. Complete and defining. And that's how Mary saw the darkness 
as she approached the tomb. It was complete and defining for her. There was no other explanation that the Lord who loved her and rescued her from her former life was dead and that her dreams were now in ashes. In her dark, dark world, the only explanation, the only explanation for an empty tomb that Mary can come up with is that not only have Jesus' enemies killed him, they have gone even farther to degrade the memory of the one that she loved. They've stolen his body. He's not even there to go. He's not even at the tomb where I could go and at least pray where he has been laid. But what Mary could not even conceive of is that, and this is important, is that her darkness was the darkness that precedes the glory of God's new creation. And beloved, I want to suggest maybe to you that maybe, could it be that the darkness that you experience is not complete and defining? That your present darkness is not complete and defining. It is not who you are. It's not all there's ever going to be. But it really is the darkness before God's new creation. So Mary, she's distraught and devastated, and she runs to find Peter and the beloved disciple, and she tells them the horrible news. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. And then the the great Easter morning foot race happens. Peter and the other disciple take off. They run to the tomb. And when they arrive at the tomb, what do they find? Well, they find, listen, they found an empty tomb. And you know what? This is the strange thing about the empty tomb. The empty tomb did not change Peter and the beloved disciple. They were still in the dark. They looked in, and they didn't see angels, and they didn't see Jesus. They just saw a shroud that he had been wrapped in. Listen to what it says. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and and he saw and believed. For as yet, he did not understand the Scripture that Christ must rise from the dead. Now, this passage says that the other disciple believed, but we don't know what he believed because it says they didn't know that he must rise from the dead. Evidently, he just believed, yep, Mary's right. There's not a body in this tomb. He's gone. What we do know is that Peter and the other disciple did not go away shouting, Alleluia, Christ is risen, the Lord is risen indeed, Alleluia. Nope, they seemed to go away just kind of scratching their heads saying, Yep, that's an empty tomb, all right. That's exactly what an empty tomb looks like. I wonder what must have happened. You know, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you something, just kind of tell you something that this gospel lesson that we just heard tells us, speaks to us. Empty tombs don't convince people. An encounter with the risen Christ convinces people. An empty tomb is not a convincing apologetic. I'm glad the tomb is empty. It's only after we have encountered the risen, living Christ that the empty tomb has any significance. And that's certainly the way it was for these first disciples. An empty tomb is not enough to launch a new creation. But after, the, after Peter and his racing partner leave the tomb in confusion, something wonderful happens. This is a, we're back to Mary in this story. She turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. This is another layer of John's story of Jesus' resurrection as as God's new creation. 
Where is the tomb in John's gospel? It is in a garden. In fact, it's only John that tells us that the tomb is in a garden. And where did the human story begin back in Genesis? It began in a garden. And, where, and who does Mary mistake Jesus for? The gardener. Beloved, though, she didn't make a mistake. Because Jesus is the gardener. He is the one that planted the first garden at the beginning of creation. And he is the one making this garden outside of Jerusalem the new Eden of a new creation. Ben, uh, uh, Bishop N.T. Wright says it so well. He, right, he says this. Gospel, uh, John's gospel is soaked in the idea of a new creation. As Mary in the garden becomes for a moment Eve, weeping for her lost innocence and her lost Lord, and then discovering the one she thinks is the gardener, really is the gardener, the one through whose healing stewardship the whole creation will be dug afresh and planted with the tree of life. The resurrection of Jesus is the coming of the kingdom of God. You know, the Holy Spirit has almost been shouting this connection throughout John's gospel. The Holy Spirit shows us that Jesus is the last Adam. In fact, that's exactly what St. Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. He calls Jesus the last Adam. So when Pilate, back to John's gospel, so when Pilate shows the beaten and bloodied Jesus to the crowd that has been screaming for Jesus' execution. Crucify him, crucify him. And then Pilate brings out Jesus, bloodied, beaten, with a crown of thorns around his head. And what does Pilate say when he presents Jesus to the crowd? Behold, not Jesus, not the king of the Jews, no, not, not your false Messiah or whatever. He says, listen, behold the man. This is man. Even Pilate, though he does not recognize it, is saying this is the last Adam. And when, God's, when God formed the woman from Adam, where, how did he do it? Well, in Genesis it says he opened Adam's side and took out a rib. This is really cool. Because it's only in John... It's only in John that it is recorded that a Roman soldier pierces the side of Jesus. The Synoptic Gospels don't mention that. Remember that the Jewish leaders came to Pilate at the end of Friday uh, as the Sabbath was approaching, and they asked permission to have the legs of the people being crucified broken so that they would suffocate and die. That's what happens when, you're, when you can't push up on that spike and expand your diaphragm to take in a, a gasp of air. So they, they wanted to break the legs, and they were going to break the legs of Jesus. They broke the legs of the two other, other prisoners that were executed, and they came to Jesus on the cross, and he had already died. And so a Roman soldier took his spear, his lance, and he pierced Jesus' side and outflowed water and blood. And through that, God gave birth to his church, the bride of Christ, in that saving act of sacrificial love. And when Jesus meets Mary in the garden, what does he call her at first? What, how does he address her? He says, woman. She is the woman. This most forgiven, most faithful disciple stands for the new Eve in this new garden. 
And right before the fallen Adam and his wife were expelled from the Garden of Eden, Adam names his wife. He names her Eve, and she's because she is the mother of all the living. And what does Jesus do after he addresses this faithful disciple as woman? Listen, remember, he names her. He speaks her name. And the light of a new creation floods into Mary's soul. Mary. Rabboni! That voice that spoke light and life into existence speaks Mary into a... She, he speaks Mary into a new creation where all of the heartbreak and trauma is overwhelmed with joy. The new creation now attained has worked backwards and turned Mary's agony into a glory. Rabboni. You can see the light exploding in her mind and heart. And it gets even better. The first creation story ends with Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, clothed with shame and regret. But the new creation story ends with this woman disciple being sent out of the garden, not expelled in shame, but being sent out to proclaim resurrection, to tell the good news that Jesus Christ is alive, and now everything has changed. She runs all the way back to where those frightened and confused men are, and she bursts through the door. You can just see the door exploding open, Mary running into the midst of those men disciples, huddled in fear. I have seen the Lord. He's alive. Now, here's the big deal, folks. Easter is not a metaphor for a new beginning. Oh, my goodness gracious. I had a steady diet of Easter being a metaphor when I was growing up in a, a mainline Protestant denomination on Easter Sunday morning. I don't want to hear any more metaphors. Easter is a metaphor. Spring is a metaphor. It's a new, uh, no, it's not a metaphor for a new beginning. It is not a metaphor for a new creation. It is, in fact, and literally a new beginning and a new creation event because this is not a metaphorical resurrection. Jesus didn't metaphorically rise from the dead. A metaphor has no power to alleviate the reality that if Christ is not risen, we are all doomed to the eternal and absolute annihilation of our consciousness and our personhood the day that the last breath leaves our body. Without a risen Jesus, we are all just whistling in the graveyard, placating the terror of the yawning chasm of death with childish, wishful thinking. And let me tell you what, brothers and sisters, as our culture becomes even more secular, here's what I've found out. Secular people, they say, I'm not believing that stupid Jesus stuff. Listen, when secular people won't believe that stupid Jesus stuff, that doesn't mean they give up believing stupid stuff. They believe all kinds of stupid stuff. I mean, it's, their credulity is not taxed. Because, but here's where it moves from the reality of resurrection, from the reality of, of Christ risen from the dead, to not, not that reality, but now all, all secular people have left is sentimentality. You know, uh, Aunt Susie died, and I was out in the garden, and I saw a butterfly, and I just knew she was with me. What? That is, that is wishful sentimentality. That is, that is someone with not a straw to grasp to facing the reality of the total, complete, dark annihilation of the grave if Christ is not risen from the dead. 
So if you're going to be a secularist, please be a good, strong, honest secularist. Oh, Aunt Susie's dead. She's just now taking the eternal dirt nap. And that's all we'll ever see of her. We don't need a metaphorical resurrection. Without Jesus risen, we are, in fact, completely, utterly, and eternally separated from every other person that you and I have ever loved who has passed through the veil of death. Without a risen Jesus, there is no chance of me truly experiencing a new beginning in my life so that I am no longer defined by my failures and brokenness of my past. Without a risen Jesus, there's no hope of me having a new beginning. So I'm not interested in metaphorical resurrections, spiritual resurrections. Well, Jesus was raised from the dead spiritually. Hogwash! Has no, has no meaning whatsoever. I'm not interested in literary resurrections, mythological resurrections, or any kind of resurrection that does not consist of real dead Jesus literally coming out of the tomb as living and victorious Jesus. Because none of those alternatives, those metaphorical alternatives, that the scoffing and unbelieving world finds more palatable has the power to address the rolling mudslide of human misery and suffering and evil and injustice. None of those has the power to overturn the terror of the grave. No, the only thing that effectively addresses all of this is that dead Jesus was raised to life in a glorified yet very physical and real human body. That means the endless, because Jesus, look, the moment Jesus steps out of that grave alive on the third day, that means that the cycle of death and evil and injustice that have defined the world up to that point, that cycle has been broken. One man has broken that cycle. And because it's happened once, a new reality is let loose on the world. And it's a reality that you and I are invited to participate in. This is so important because you and I personally, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it's important because as broken, fallen, and failing human beings, we all... We all need a new beginning. We all need a new beginning where the pattern of repeated failure can be broken. Listen to me. Some of us need to hear this. We need to have the pattern of repeated failure broken in our lives. I'm going to tell you a secret about how that pattern has to be broken. Yes, Jesus is risen from the dead. He calls you to experience and live in his resurrection victory. But you know how you get to a resurrection? Listen, you have to go through Good Friday. And some of us this morning want to get to resurrection. I can't get this pattern of defeat out of my life. Well, have you nailed it to the cross? We want to keep resuscitating that part of our life we want to hold on to it just a little bit longer. We want to pick that scab just a little bit more. Ooh, he said that in church. It is. It's just that nasty. We want, to, we want to hang on to that. Oh, I don't want to give up the possibility of ever doing that again. I can't let that really go. I'm not going to crucify it. You have got to let Jesus Christ nail that past brokenness to his cross where you can never take it down again, where it's never an alternative to go back to. You have to fully and completely relinquish it by the power of the Holy Spirit, by his grace, yes, but you have to let go and let him take the nails of his cross and nail it there to die. 
And then, and then, and then, and then, he will raise you to new life that you could never possibly imagine the joy of. You can never imagine the freedom that he can give you. Once he, once he has nailed that to the cross, um, <laughs> this is picayune, this is petty, but it is an example I'm not ashamed to uh, share with you. My other ones are embarrassing. But <laughs> I, uh, when I was a, a younger person, um, uh, my tw- then 12-year-old, I, no, actually he was younger than that, uh, brother-in-law uh, introduced me, <laughs> I hate to say this story, this embarrassing, uh, to smokeless tobacco. I was, he, you wanted, we were on the farm, and he said, you want to dip a snuff? And I said, well, of course I do. I don't know what that is, but I'll have some. Thank you very much. I became, I was so addicted. I was so addicted. I told you this is picayune, but it's one I'm willing to share. But it was not until, and I, I, I did that. I had that habit for a long time. I mean, those of you listening on the podcast, I'm sorry. This is the South. This happens. Guys can do this. But anyway, uh, for 18 years, for 18 years, I, I was literally addicted to that mess. But it was not, here's why I could not find release from it. It's because I was not, I was not willing to really say, I want this dead. I was not willing to say, I want this nailed up and I'm never taking it back off the cross. And the day I was willing to do that was the day that I had new freedom. Now that is a trifling example. But there are those of us who need to hear it. God wants you to experience the victory of the resurrection. He wants you to have a new beginning where the pattern of repeated failure can be broken. We need a new beginning because even those of us, listen, who look to put together on the outside, even those of us who look really neat and tidy and under control have ruined the precious life we were given, ruined it to the point that we don't want to be connected to that person who did those things in the past. We want a new sheet of paper to start over. We need a new beginning because if there is no new creation, ultimately this life ends not with a bang, but with the whimper of the grave. Jesus' resurrection, hear me, means that God's work of a new creation, of the new heavens and the new earth, of a whole new reality, has truly begun in this world right now. And it is happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. I, uh, this week I've been reading online, uh, and, this, and you, there are books out about this. One of them is uh, by actually a, a scholar, uh, but it's called, a, uh, I think, and he was with the, um, he was with the uh, mission board of the SBC. I just abbreviated because we're Anglicans. No, Southern Baptist Convention Mission Board. And he, uh, but what, he, he wrote a book called A Wind in the House of Islam. And in that book, he recounts what I hear all the time, and I've, I've talked to people to whom this has happened, where in the Muslim world, which is so closed off to evangelism, Muslim women, men, children are having visions and dreams of a man who comes to them and identifies himself as Jesus and sends them to find the one Christian they can find so that they can tell them about the plan of salvation, and they're coming in droves, thousands, to know Christ. It's happening every day. The new creation is breaking out. People are literally being healed by this King Jesus who's still walking around today. Physically healed. Not metaphorically healed. (laughs) When you're really sick, metaphorical healing is just not enough. 
people are really seeing injustice overturned with the justice of God. People are really seeing the poor having the good news preached to them, the blind having their eyes open, the lame being made to walk, and the captives being set free, and the acceptable year of the Lord's favor is being proclaimed. It's happening today. You're not going to see it on CNN because it's not about Donald Trump. There's something amazing happening in the world. It's this. The church is God's new creation. We're a new creation people. It is happening now. Don't let the devil tell you it's not happening. And you are invited to be a part of that this morning. Christ is risen, truly risen. And if you can hold on to that truth and that reality, and if you say, Lord, I need to have a merry moment where in the garden of my darkness I encounter the garden and you, gardener and you speak my name, you better ask him for that. He will give you that. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Please stand with me.